0: You're listening to Version Control, Pound and Grain's digital news podcast. And with us today, we have our design director at Pound and Grain, Caitlin. How are you, Caitlin? I'm good,
1: thank you. How are you?
0: I'm good. And we have our senior art director, Jess, and we are so, so, so excited to chat with the two of you today because it's typography month. So we figured we'd have two of Pound and Grains experts on the podcast to kind of talk through the strength of typography, how it's an art form, and just have like a general interesting conversation about why it's important um, so we're really, really happy that you guys were able to join us and thankful for that. Um, and just kind of wanted to go start with a really easy one. And and just like, how did either of you learn about typography? Because that's the one thing um, this month that Kat and I are kind of going through. We're, we, you know, we're reading stuff and we're looking at different things, but we're just like, how do you learn what's good and not good typography? Um, Jess, why don't you kick us off?
2: yeah. <laughs> I had a really traditional uh, upbringing with my typography uh, in school. We uh, actually started off by drawing out fonts by hand, uh, each one, each main one, you know, we would do like Arial, Helvetica, Times New Roman, and then just doing that by hand, we were able to really pick up the differences with each font. We were able to learn um, sort of how they felt with that hands-on approach, and then in school as well, they really they did a great job with pairing it with the history of the typography. You know, who who did it, why they did it. That was a really big important thing. You know, why that font was needed, and and how uh, that font can be used, and how, how that typography can be used for uh, the designer, and and what situations are really great for it.
0: So, Caitlin, what about you? Did you have a similar sort of traditional? Uh, designer typography upbringing as well
1: uh well my mum actually is a graphic designer too she now teaches and so I've actually grown up with typography in my face since I was super super young we'd have prints on the walls that were just text and it's like my friends wouldn't get what it was but I was like always super excited about like the spacing and the kind of the shape and the forms of the letters so it's been something that I've been kind of um excited about I guess from a super young age and then when I got into university it was um yeah like a similar experience to Jess like you really kind of get into the nitty-gritty of like how do you make this what are those really minute differences between different typefaces that give them each their unique personality um I nerd out on it pretty hard I have a bunch of typography books that are like literally about the spacing between particular letters and uh, grammar and things like that so I really like getting into all of that um, minute detail with it, but um, yeah, they've definitely been a big part of my life and I nerd out on it hugely and uh, love that I'm now in a profession where I get to play around with it all day, every day.
0: So you kind of touched on something really interesting there and just kind of like nerding out on like spacing and (laughs) size and shape and stuff like that. But Caitlin, like in your opinion, like like what makes a, a good typeface?
1: It really is just a a feeling I think the way that the symmetry and the balance and the the forms whether it be like the actual dark shape of the type or the letter itself or even the negative space around it it all kind of comes together in a way to create create a feeling and create an emotion and I think so often I'll see something and I'll kind of gut react to it like instantly without I guess I've looked looked at fonts and typefaces enough to kind of know what is good and what isn't in terms of that structure and the the spacing being correct and things like that so that it really just becomes about that shape and that personality that's added to it through tiny little flares or ligatures or anything like that that really makes it sing and makes it stand out from something different because I find people who aren't designers i think might look at type and think i don't understand what's the difference i know my fiance is definitely like that but <laughs> um, it's like when you understand those little nuances and the little differences and how a tiny little serif can make such a difference it's really interesting to um see how each of them grow and into their own personality that has yeah like i say like its own own emotion and feeling that comes from from
0: writing with it. Jess, Caitlin mentioned something really interesting there about, you know, sometimes it's just about that gut feeling. Um, For somebody like yourself and who's been, you know, working in design and art direction for quite a long time, like when you're exploring um, trying to find a really good typeface for a client or a brand, like what, how do you follow your gut in those situations?
2: I would say... It kind of comes down to some basics. We do tend to have uh, a couple little secret tools in our arsenal that can stretch a typeface and make it work in one way or another. The main kind of foundations that we look at when it comes to the anatomy of a typeface is usually first and foremost legibility. And when I say we have some tools in our arsenal there that we can address that, there are some things that we can do to really pump up the legibility of a font. You know, sometimes it's uh, increasing the letting or, or, you know, the space around each letter or, you know, increasing the size or um, making it a little bit of a darker color if it's on a really light background. So there are some things in that realm that we can play with. So accessibility is first, but we do have some wiggle room there. And I do think that it comes down to what Caitlin said, ultimately, which was the gut of the font. Like, how does it make you feel? And how does that support the message and brand of our clients? So, you know, if we're, if we have a very, very serious client, a very professional client, you know, maybe you want to go with something a little bit more traditional and and when I say traditional, I mean there is there is a lot of history within each font. You have to keep in mind that design is a lot about the visual communication over a long period of time. So, you know, a hundred years ago, when this typography or this this typeface was popular, how did that contribute to the public's feeling of that typeface? You know, in in Caitlin, you might remember this better than, but I think it was like the 60s when Helvetica became quite um, prominent, prominently used and that became part of the visual kind of language that the public was interacting with. What does that mean for the average viewer? And how does that feeling kind of, vibe into the feeling that you want your our our brands to come across so like I said in that in in that initial example of if say we have a very professional very serious client you know maybe we do go with something a little bit more traditional like a you know a serif like a times New Roman or something like that or if we have something that's very modern very cutting edge um and it, it is targeted towards you know millennials and and younger people maybe we go with a, a newer font and done in a newer way so
0: and I want to ask a little bit about typography trends because you were kind of alluding to that and how they evolve and they change over time and also depending on what types of messages and who and who you're trying to speak to um, so I'll just kind of throw this out there to anybody who, who wants to answer but is there like are there typography trends that you're seeing right now or that you've spotted in the past um, that are really influencing modern design right now?
1: I think there always are and I think they honestly go pretty hand in hand with like the design trends of a certain year or period of time because certain fonts and typefaces will will pair better with certain kind of visual elements and styles. Um, this year I think recently there's been like a real uptake in what what we would call like humanist typography and so it's like it has an element of the person that's created it. So, like typically in the olden days before everything was done on computers, you would hand draw type. Like just said earlier, she didn't school, and so humanist typefaces have have an element of that. They're not completely perfect in terms of maybe exactly straight lines or like exactly perfect corners that are consistent in every single letter. Like there's a touch of that human behind the font, which is. I think really beautiful I love I love this kind of trend I guess that's around right now and it honestly with the visual stuff that's kind of more popular these days too is it's a lot more illustrative and um graphical rather than maybe always using photography and things like that like there's a lot more of that hand-drawn element with within design as a whole and so I think the reason that that kind of type trend um, has come about is because it pairs so beautifully with with that aesthetic of something a little bit more hand-drawn. And I think, honestly, everything goes in phases. Everything goes in cycles. It's like with fashion or film or any of these things, like those kind of cycles that we go through. And so you'll get revivals of... Helvetica will make a big comeback and everything will be super clean and modern and Swiss looking and then we kind of get a bit more hand drawn and we kind of, we go through these cycles so it's interesting but I think each time there's new people there's new type designers that come in and put their flair on it. So like Helvetica for instance, as everyone knows, I love but there are like so many spin-offs of that that are just as beautiful and have their own kind of slightly unique take on it. Like one of the clients we're working on right now, their typeface is Swiss and to my fiance, it would look exactly the same as Helvetica, But there are like really interesting little nuances to it that make it feel fresh. I,
0: I really like what you're talking about with the sort of like the humanism and, and um, the designer kind of bringing an element of themselves, a personality into it. Um, Jess, I'll throw this one to you, but like, has there ever been an instance in your career or a project that you've worked on where you started with kind of like a base typeface and then you built on that? And, and what was that process like?
2: I have been in many situations where we will be working with a typeface and we'll find that it's just not delivering the message um, of the brand. Maybe, you know, the brand strategy has shifted a little bit or the, um, you know, the brand is going in a different direction and they're targeting new people and and they're changing up their visual language as, as a part of that. And there have been times when we have decided to switch out the typeface for... Um, to address those changes. And I think Caitlin's point about typography going through phases. I like, I like that a little bit more than trends. I think trends mm-hmm. sometimes give the, I, I think it devalues the typeface decisions, but I, I think agree. what we need to keep in mind is that we're not really as designers, we're not necessarily making typeface decisions based off of um uh, you know, not, uh, we're, we're making typeface decisions for, for a certain reason. And if we do choose a trendy font, quote unquote, you can't see my air quotes, but trendy <laughs> font, <laughs> we're making that decision because it is part of the visual, like the collective visual language that a cer- certain target market is responding to at that time. So yeah. w- if we have changed our, uh, uh, you know, the, a client's key typeface it usually is to address that
1: I you totally hit the nail on the head there Jess I also just have a bit of an an aversion to the word trend because like you say it kind of like it's like a fashion trend it's like you're just picking something because it's cool rather than picking something that because it's right for that brand or client or project and I think our goal as designers is ultimately to create something that's timeless like it shouldn't be with a trend it's like when this trend, quote unquote, is over, it's like does that then mean that we have to completely redo the brand? Like that shouldn't be the case. It should be something that lives, breathes, and feels exactly like that company, that ethos, that brand vision in type form, um, and last, last forever.
2: I have such a nerdy way of thinking about typography in that way, Caitlin. <laughs> it's, I like to think of typography and tr- again, air quotes, trends, <laughs> design trends as almost like layers of soil. Yeah. If you look at like, you know, the earth and you look at all these different layers of soil, you can kind of cut down and cut through each layer and kind of go, oh yeah, that was this time period. Oh yeah, that was that time period. And even though that time period has passed, you can kind of cut down and get deeper and look at what current trends are being built off of those previous trends and go like yeah no that is still relevant like caitlin's point about this this humanistic uh typeface it's that whole feeling and it's being revived and that initial feeling that applied back then still applies now you know it's it's going back to like the word humanist it's going back to a focused on the person on mm-hmm. the feelings that they and, and really romanticizing it
1: Yeah, and I think that's happening in a lot of things too, right? Because it's that love, I think, now because everything is so digital and everything is so on a device that there's a lot of things. That's how Instagram started, right? It was so you could add a photo filter to make it look like an old vintage photo rather than something that was shot on a phone. It's like there's this revival of wanting to get back to the roots of where things started, where they came from, to have that touch of the old, have that touch of the craft, behind it rather than everything being taken over by an AI <laughs> and us becoming irrelevant. It's like showing that there is human, there is a human element to everything I think is largely why that's kind of come come back.
0: Well, that kind of, that's kind of an, a good transition into what I want to talk about next, which is this sort of like this idea of digital and print um, when it comes to typography. So the both of you have mentioned like in school, you a lot of it was hand-drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously now we're doing a lot of work on computers, but do you feel as though like typography and the way you approach it is differently, is different now on the computer that, that you rely so much on it? Or, or do you kind of apply the same principles to it as if you were hand-drawing? I'll, I'll throw that to, to Jess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, there are some differences for me. The first difference being the nature of <laughs> weirdly the light. So because you're when you're viewing something on a computer screen, the light is coming at your eyes, whereas if you're viewing something like a printed piece, the light is coming um, from external sources onto the piece itself. And I just realized that I didn't really explain the first bit properly, but the on a digital screen, the light is coming from the piece itself. And that tends to change how your eye views the, the white space of the typography. So, um when you're looking at something on screen you need to remember size is so important the other thing to consider too with a printed piece is you may have it at a different space from you whereas you know like for example if you're looking at a business card it can kind of uh you can kind of look at it at a in a couple different like it could be really close to your face it could be far away from your face if you're looking at a poster it tends to be quite far but you might be walking by it whereas something on screen generally speaking you're looking at it about the same distance away so all of these things are kind of coming together all of these there there are so many little nuances that again have to do with like the space between the the letters themselves the space between the words and you have to really keep in mind keep that in mind when you're um, designing for digital versus a printed piece you know for example like if you're if you're um, doing something on the web, I think I think the kind of go-to now is like 16 pixels is sort of or 16 points is sort of the smallest that you want to see something on the web. Whereas, mm-hmm. um, if you're printing something, you, you can get away with something um, a little bit smaller when because depending on what it
1: is, of course. But
0: what about you, Caitlin, in, in terms of the, the the shift or how how you approach things from a digital or a traditional perspective?
1: Yeah, I think Jess answered that super well. I think it, like it's pretty similar for the most part, but I think the biggest thing is where it comes down to scale because, I mean, Jess said it perfectly, is that what you're viewing digitally, on it, whether it be on your laptop or your phone or your tablet or whatever, you're typically two feet away from it at all times. And so you, your scale and your font choices and your spacing and all of that has to always be catered to the fact that someone's viewing it in that way, whereas... Yeah, like if you're doing a huge billboard or a poster that's going to be on a wall or anything like that, it's like you have to think about, okay, so where is the person going to be when they're viewing this? Um, and how can I ensure that they're going to still be able to read everything, but in a completely different setting? So I think that's kind of the main difference. Accessibility is just super, super key for, for um, digital obviously. And I mean, it's just as, it's just as uh, important for print too. It's like everything should be accessible, whatever platform it's in. I just think there's a lot more control and kind of nuances within the digital space for that.
2: The biggest, my biggest pet (laughs) peeve print is designing for uh, a billboard on the edge of a highway. Oh, I know. (laughs) Because if someone's going 20 kilometers per hour, Versus
1: 120 hour Can <laughs> yeah. they read that? <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's like, how many words can they read, and how big can I put them? Basically, exactly. <laughs> how much can I shrink the logo without the client <laughs> telling me to make it bigger to allow enough space for people to be able to read this from like half a kilometer away? <laughs>
0: yeah, that definitely brings up a like. Another topic, which is accessibility. Um, So I know, Jess, you kind of brought this up like very early on in the conversation and that that is definitely one of the things that goes into the decision making process Um, for noobs like myself, like, what is accessibility when it comes to typography?
2: Simple, it's, it's, can you read it? And that's it. <laughs> can you read it?
0: <laughs> I, I, I do recall us having like a brief conversation about your feelings on Comic Sans though.
2: Yes. Yes. So, so I think that when I am being a bit of a smart ass, I say, <laughs> can you read go it? for it? I do really mean it. Like if you um, are dyslexic, can you read it? If you um, are visually impaired, can you still read it? Are there situations, you know, like Braille, like, that's, that's a type that, you know, Braille as a typeface is absolutely fascinating. And you have to really be able to consider all typography from an accessibility standpoint, because if you can't read it, what's the point? And then that opens up a whole can of worms about like wingdings and
1: <laughs> and
2: whatnot,
1: but we'll I'll ignore that for now. We should
0: it's do a whole episode on wingdings.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we totally should have would totally being stuck. I think it's interesting though, because it is about that, and there are typefaces like Comic Sans, which Jess and I have different opinions on, but I like I get that the whole reason that was designed was that it is super legible for people who are dyslexic but regardless of that like the most accessible typeface another thing that comes into it is color so like there's an amazing plugin that we use in um, our design programs where you can see and I always do it because I find it so fascinating but you can see all of the different types of color blindness, you can view your design in their eyes so that you can, under, you can ensure that whatever type you're using in whichever color combo, that it's then still legible. Because it blows my mind that you can have like red text on a black background and someone will see it as green, which is fascinating. Like, I, it makes my brain hurt trying to work out how, how people even know what that. All those different things look like but it's like that's another level that come comes into that too when designing um anything for print and for digital is is one the typeface can you read it but also can you can you see it on that uh with those color choices
0: well i mean let's let's have the conversation then about comic sans because i feel (laughs) like there's like it's going to be a good one um I know that like it kind of gets a lot of flack and and that you know it's it it feels a little childish and you know it's what my mom uses in her emails to me and it it for that reason alone i'm i'm <laughs> I'm like what's going on here um but how do you guys i mean we'll start with Caitlin and then um <laughs> we'll move it over to Jess, but like Caitlin, you mentioned before that it's not maybe your favorite font and or your favorite type face can you explain why
1: <laughs> it's just like it's probably. It's one of those typefaces, It's like one of the first typefaces people ever see. It's like when you're in school and you're first using a computer when you're like five and you have like 20 different fonts to choose from, it's just the one that everyone's like, ooh, look at this one. And it's like you've just seen it so much that it's just been so incredibly, incredibly overused. I think it is very incredibly smart in how it's designed is that typically – how you would build out an alphabet of letters is that like a B would be an upside down P and like all of those things. And so there's these consistent shapes and forms throughout that entire alphabet that makes it easy to to read. But it's not easy to read to someone who has dyslexia, which is why it was designed, because every single letter has its own unique little forms that makes each letter unique and like distinguishable. Um, from each other and so I think it is super super smart but there are also like tons of new fonts now that are done in that same way that are a lot better. I've said it before, every font has a personality and it just has a personality of that five-year-old kid that's using a computer for the first time in my mind.
2: And I would go so far as to say what isn't frustrating about it is it's overuse because you know Helvetica is used a lot as well but it's, it's use in situations where it shouldn't be. We want to make sure that all of the design choices that we make are coming together and really supporting the message that we're trying to deliver. We'll bring, you know, colors and shapes and typography and the correct language, the correct tone. All of these things should accumulate into the exact right overall message that you want to deliver to somebody. Now, the problem with Comic Sans is that it's, original purpose being you know like a comic book the the handwriting from a, a comic book yeah people aren't using it in that situation you know like you said you're you're seeing your mom email you with it in yeah in seeing it on <laughs> in
0: purple like, sorry in
2: purple that. Yeah. <laughs> always seeing, in purple <laughs> always. yeah or you're seeing banks use it on their walls because someone had to quickly put up something like out of order the washroom's out of order and you know, you would never expect a bank to be using something so lighthearted, <laughs> and that's really where it is quite painful for a designer because it's just sending such a, the uh, the incorrect message um, to the viewer.
0: But can you stand up for for Comic Sans dress a little bit?
2: I, I think I think Caitlin already stood up for it for me in the sense that. It is great. Uh, they they are kind of coming out now and seeing seeing that it is great from an accessibility standpoint with dyslexia. But again, I think that coming back to that idea of a collective visual language, I think that there are other type or typefaces out there that can do that in more of a professional way, depending on the the situation. You know, I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. ever recommend a, a bank ever using. Comic Sans just to try to be accessible because it just sends so many um, of the wrong messages to its viewers. But it is cool to see that people with dyslexia can read this typeface very well. And I think that's really what's cool about Comic Sans is it is a really great learning point for designers and for typeface designers moving forward.
0: So what would be a really good example of a brand or something that you've seen that that does that really, really well?
2: Starbucks, they're, they're pretty good at They tend to change up their supporting typography a pretty decent amount depending on what they're doing, who they're speaking to, what the goals are. But that Mm. Starbucks, that basic Starbucks logo, even the typography in it hasn't changed um, as frequently. And I think that's when you are choosing the same typeface that you have in your logo, I think you run into a problem where your logo no longer becomes differentiated from the rest of the items on. Um, whatever design piece you're showing. So, for example, if you're on a website, your logo is in one typography. Let's say it's Helvetica, and then all the headlines are Helvetica. There's no, there's no uh, oh, okay. unconscious call to action for the user to remember your logo. And y- you really do want to make sure that your logo is is memorable because, unless you get into a situation where you can get away with just the icon, you, your goal for a logo is to become memorable. You want to take up some of the headspace of your your viewers and your target market there, so you're kind of just you're you're really hurting yourself if you choose the same typeface as you do with your logo. You think you're helping because you think that it's part. <laughs> it comes of from a brand. good place. <laughs> it does, yes, but it it does end up kind of doing a little bit of damage because, like Caitlin mentioned, the goal of the logo is different than the typography that you're using in your brand
0: design and, and the thought put behind decisions and choices and stuff like this is so important Um, because, you know, I look at everything from a story perspective and, you know, if it looks cool to me, then I'm good with it, but there's so much more story and weight behind the decisions on why things look the way they do. Um, So that's bought you quite a bit of time (laughs) to think about uh, either that brand or, or that sort of piece of typography that you've seen that really kind of, you know, explains in your mind, like, what what great type of what great typography is. Does either of you have a good example that you can share?
1: I have a lot of type things in my house, but the one thing I will religiously buy every single year is a Stendig calendar, and it's my favorite, most beautiful thing on my wall ever. And it's, for those of you that don't know, Scott, I'm guessing maybe you're not 100% sure. No idea what
0: you're talking about, so <laughs> please enlighten um, me.
1: So it's designed by Massimo Vignelli, who is my favorite graphic designer of all time, rest in peace. And um, he is an incredible designer. He used Helvetica a lot, and it's maybe a large reason as to why I'm such a huge fan of that typeface. But he created this thing years and years and years ago in the 60s or 50s um, called a standard Calendar, which is a giant wall hanging it's massive I don't even know I don't I still don't understand inches properly but it's big on my wall and it's super super clean like it alternates months to months one is white one is black so the white has black text the, the black has white text and it's just a calendar and it's just beautiful type that was kerned by in my mind the best designer of all time um and it's just a, such a stunning piece and it makes me feel so Good inside just looking at it and I think he's one person designer wise who is the king of designing things that stand the test of time he did things like American Airlines um uh if that's the only one that comes to my mind right now Jess help me out if you can remember any of but he's <laughs> done some incredible branding where it's he has used Helvetica a, a lot in his work but it's so well done and he knows exactly when to use it and how to use it in a way that works for a myriad of different kind of companies. So I have a lot of his pieces around It's not a brand like you kind of asked for, but it's like of design pieces that I I have in my world. Mm-hmm. Those are the pieces that I get like emotionally attached to, I guess.
0: I'm just looking it up. It's fascinating.
1: It's, uh, I'll send you a picture of mine. It's brilliant. It's my favorite yeah.
0: thing in the world. Jess, what about you? Take us home. What do you got?
1: I really like hand-drawn typography.
2: Maybe because Caitlin's example is a master doing it at such a high performance level of like everything is just pixel perfect or in the exact right position, whereas mine is the exact opposite. Everything's (laughs) in the wrong position and that's what makes it amazing. I I also love like graffiti as well to look at Mm -hmm. how graffiti breaks all the rules of typography and it's just so, so expressive. And they, they, because, you know, uh, most graffiti artists, I'm making an assumption here, but most of them, you know, weren't traditionally trained in typography. They just, like I said, they break every rule in the book and still somehow make it work. And to me, that's fascinating.
0: Well, thank you so (laughs) much for, uh, educating me on typography and (laughs) um sharing some of your thoughts with us this was an awesome conversation to have Um, we're going to put a lot of the examples that um the two of you have talked about into the show notes and you'll be able to click on them and take a look at some of the examples because this is a very visual topic that we're we're going (laughs) through Um, but thank you thank you thank you so much for for hanging out and and talking typography i really appreciate it that was so
1: fun yeah thanks for having us thank you so much
0: Thanks for listening to Version Control, Season 2, Episode 2, The Art of Type. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate us on iTunes.